Hello and welcome to another episode of 15 Minute Medicine where we try to make medicine as simple as possible but not simpler than that. I'm your host Bright Chukumansi and you're joining us for the first episode of season 3. I'm talking to you on the 27th of April 2021 but this episode was initially recorded on the 21st of December 2020. So there's been quite a lot of change in the world obviously as you can imagine since then. Basically in this episode what we're doing is just reflecting on the times that have changed and what's happened with COVID-19, the most topical thing of 2020, and it's still currently a problem or something that's a big part of our lives. This is also the first episode where all four members of 15 Minute Medicine took part in the conversation. So it was myself, Efosa Honba, Krithi Ravi, and Nicholas Mutanda. We're going to get straight into the recording, and the first part of this is just us reflecting on what's currently happening at that time of the 21st of December, we're about to enter the second wave of COVID-19, whereas now, in South Africa particularly, we are supposedly entering an, a third wave. We're just checking in on our, on our co-hosts to see how they are feeling at this current moment in time. Let's start with Nicholas. Yeah, hi. So, a bit of a, how do I put this, a conflicting situation. I mean, 2020 has been... I think for the most part, for most of everyone, pretty terrible. But I mean, most of my plans were delayed, but delayed was not denied. So yeah, I think every time you sort of interact with someone who has had been on the rough end or the, or the raw end of the stick of 2020, you sort of start to realize and put your, your life into perspective and realize how privileged you are in certain situations and how privileged others are in, situa- in other situations. And just It hasn't been the same for everyone. It's been pretty terrible across the board, but I mean, not all terribles are equal. I can uh, make a mockery of Animal Farm. And you, Fosa, how's your 2020 been? Yeah, my 2020 has been quite interesting, as alluded to earlier. Um, a lot of ups and downs, and essentially the way we do life as we used to know it has changed quite significantly. But like as Nick has alluded to, there are moments where you actually reflect and realize that there are some, there were some good moments and some bad, and I think we need to always like look at the good and try remain hopeful that the bad will sort of get better, so to say, or like use the positives of the good to keep ourselves, you know, hopeful that things will work out in the end. There have been times where, you know, feeling like numb or feeling uh, just just burnt out. But overall, I think grateful to be alive, grateful to be employed and still in good health at the end of the day. Speaking of feeling burnt out of us, we are currently, well, at the beginning of our, our second phase of our COVID, the COVID peak. Do you think that your burnout has contributed to kind of knowing what the first peak was like and knowing that this is, that it's like a second coming of sorts and possibly even worse? Or do you think it's just a continuous kind of feeling of exhaustion that's just built on throughout the year and obviously now just compounded by the fact that the cases are rising again? Mm. I think it's more the latter. I think regardless of COVID, I would have probably been burnt out at this time anyways, just because internship in South Africa as a whole. But then obviously now compounded by COVID, the effects thereof, one would say, yeah. Pretty. In a sense, you can kind of say that besides being the year, 2020 being the year of COVID-19, in a sense, it's also been the year of the doctor. Why I say this is, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, I'm almost quite sure it is not just the UK, South Africa, but across the world, but the medical profession has been cast into the spotlight 
being this very, very important thing because during our various lockdowns, it's been one of the essential services. Mm. How has that made you feel being a healthcare provider? Mixed, I would say, just to echo what was said by Fosa and Nicholas before me. I think the attitude towards healthcare providers and hospitals between the first and the second wave in the UK has perceptibly changed. And I'm not sure if that's the same for you in South Africa. We, during the first lockdown, you know, people were very, very stringent, adhered very closely to the rules, or, or at least that was my perception of it. And we had a very good response. And the first lockdown lasted quite a long, a lot longer than the second lockdown, which was only sort of a month or so. But, you know, people are tired, people are frustrated, people are cynical. There is fake news everywhere. There's people calling into question whether, you know, COVID-19 cases are rising. There was a lot of academic chat about things being a case-demic. I don't know if you've come across that term, but basically just saying this is not a pandemic. People aren't actually dying, you know, we're just mm. getting more cases. And, you know, some very high-profile people in the academic community said this. So I think the, the public's attitude towards doctors and healthcare providers has certainly changed quite a bit between the first and the second. Because in the first, it was sort of novel and it was life-threatening and yes. um, everyone sort of believed what they were told. But then people started saying different things and the government messaging was really, really suboptimal and really confusing. But also the government didn't put in enough measures to support people who had to take social distancing measures. So, you know, that it's a complex, nuanced picture. How do I feel personally as a healthcare provider? Exhausted uh, most of the time, actually. Sometimes I, f I feel like an, um, an imposter because I haven't been on the ICU, actually. And a lot of our workloads, as, as you've said very accurately, Fosa, I think it's just being a junior doctor isn't it it's just literally being a junior doctor and our workloads tend to increase over covid because people were presenting later you know they were getting they were getting sicker at home and presenting later or the other support networks that would usually be in place to stop people deteriorating so much weren't working so well so yeah timeless was a big part of it but on some level i also felt really privileged as a doctor throughout because despite a lot of public mistrust i think people still trusted Mm. quite a lot of people still trusted us but on top of that I, I got to go to work you know I got to leave my house and go to work and see my colleagues and I know that seems like a very petty thing to say at this time but that routine was very important to me actually kept you know very important for my physical and mental well-being social media is definitely a big part of our lives and no one can deny that so obviously, if we have such something as big as a global pandemic, social media is obviously going to have quite an influence on it. Now we just listen to what the team had to say on the effect of social media on containing the COVID-19 response. It can be looked at both ways in a positive and negative light. In a positive sense, I mean, for example, certain people will actually be like, share their personal stories or experiences and like try and really highlight how like serious this is like you know for example they'll be like guys COVID is real like my ex-family member is in ICU or my ex-family member just passed on etc cetera, etc cetera. and they just attended the small event and all of a sudden now they're really sick to try and really highlight that we need to take this more seriously and on the other hand you'll have people you know possibly even bragging about oh I've been to this and that and that and still haven't got COVID or or even just questioning as Nick mentioned like 
all the regulations or the actual data and things like that, which just comes down for me to the conclusion that people, at a certain point, people are just going to do whatever they want. Yes, that's actually very true. As human nature, yeah, as human nature, people will do what they want. If they, they'll take whatever the information is presented to them and they, they'll do what they will. If they want to protect themselves and others, they'll adhere to the regulations. If they don't really care and they just want to live for themselves, they're going to do that. And it's just everyone's own responsibility to make sure they protect themselves. Then at what point, I mean, every man for, like, it's becoming slowly but surely every man for himself and the way people are approaching it. Some have chosen to wear wear masks, some have chosen not to wear masks. At what point does the government then intervene? You know, but at what point is it not every man for himself and the government has to take over and take charge? Well, I think it'll probably end up being a case of total military rule like to try and enforce such things like because they just no capacity for people like to enforce like a lot of like regulations but we need buy-in so if there's no buy-in like but you really want to still enforce it then like you may have to like get a lot stricter and make it in a way that allows for practically which i don't think it's practical anyways but to try and do mass enforcements of regulations, but it has to be, there has to be buy-in. And if we can't get that, I'm not sure what the government can do, to be honest. I don't think they can do anything, really. I want to play the devil's advocate a little bit and ask about the role of compassion in enforcing such sort of lockdown or social distancing type rules. Let's take sort of India as a case example. The majority, the majority of people in India are poor. Actually, uh, it is a rising economy, but the wealth inequality is massive, and a lot of people live on subsistence jobs. So if they don't work that day, they don't eat that day. And the enforcement of curfews and lockdown rules over over India, with very very little notice, has and it's been done, you know, prop, you know, properly enforced, as it were, with police and you know what's it called when the army enforces rules among civilians there's a word for it there's a term uh, yeah military rule there's like a term anyway yes martial law thank you thanks Nicholas. yeah martial exactly but people people starved and died actually more people starved from died from starvation than from COVID-19 so That wasn't a point about not needing lockdown rules. That was a point about needing compassion when enforcing some rules. Because, yes, you're absolutely right. People will always do what they want to do. You can only inform them. But as we know, as junior doctors, when we're trying to counsel patients about, you know, having a, a procedure or a treatment or, you know, about taking medication that's important for them. Oh, why do I need to take this medication, doctor? It's so large. It's like a horse pill. I don't want to take it. And we talk to them about risks and benefits, but we're also taught at some level to apply compassion. And I just wonder if, I don't know, the UK government, for example, had a little bit more compassion in the way that it enforced lockdown for people that were disabled, people that needed carers, single people, people with mental health difficulties, or the US government's stimulus package for lockdown didn't just consist of a $600 check. You know, I wonder if there would be more buy-in. But then that begs the question is, when people don't want to adhere to the rules of lockdowns, whichever form they may be, Mm. is it because they are in a way disadvantaged, like you've mentioned the very vulnerable groups? 
disabled people, mental health mm. care users, the elderly, mm. versus someone who's just talking about their free will and the rights that they have to not be locked down in their house, but to go and do whatever they want. The first example, yes, governments um, need to find a way to make it possible that people can continue or not continue, but cannot have catastrophic effects of lockdown. But then I think with the example that Eforza has brought up is when people are just so disobeying because they find it in their rights, their supposed rights yeah. to not listen to yeah. the government, then mm. that's the other end where you need to question mm. where exactly does the government's control end, which is a double-edged sword because how much control can you give to the government? Because, yeah, mm. basically the history of the world. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. I'd be interested to hear what Ifosa thought about the potential different approaches we need to take on these two groups. But I don't want to put you on the spot too much as well, Ifosa. So Nicholas, feel free to join in. And I'm happy to to yeah, give my views. I agree completely, and definitely. That's why I said like it's quite impractical for a government to try enforce very hard, harsh lockdown regulations. So, to a certain extent, the way South Africa did it, to a certain extent, was kind of. I thought initially a, a good approach where it was this um, risk-adjusted strategy where it's gradually opening up the economy and allowing pe- participants to still make a living for themselves while still trying to maintain strict uh, or relatively strict regulations or keep people as safe as possibly can they can while still able to make a living or you know fend for themselves because there were some very devastating financial effects for the economy and for people, particularly those who are disadvantaged or those who as you say, um, live on a subsistence basis where if you don't work that day, you don't eat. So I think that's why South Africa gradually started opening up the economy and um, let go of the very harsh, hard lockdown that it was under. But I think now to a certain extent, it's become sort of out of hand. Like as Farai's alluded to, you could see on social media, like freely massive parties, no masks, rage happening, thousands of students with a lot of alcohol and possibly other substances in closed spaces. And now about a thousand plus cases have just been derived from that. And then like they've gone and spread it to other parts of the country. So it's about finding that balance, so to say. Yeah, absolutely right. I have very, very little sympathy for these, for selfishness um, at all. And I think my tolerance for that has continually decreased over the course of 2020. What about you guys? I'm finding that I'm actually the opposite. Ah. At the beginning, I was very intolerant. And then my COVID fatigue actually set in where I'm still judgy, but I can understand it a bit more. And I think that... No, 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 Nick, you've given up. But we'll leave that off off of this episode. But yeah, at the beginning, I was... I don't know, it was a case of, again, back to social media. And when you start to do your own searches, you're you get a bit frightened about what the possibilities are. But as you've mentioned, Krithi, not that I believe that there's a case they make, but when you see the risks are not, or rather the outcomes aren't as severe as initially feared, you start to weigh up the pros versus cons. But then again, if a um, a potential risk comes up again, for example, now I need to go visit my parents, then all of a sudden you get very cautious again. And I think that was my biggest, I think my biggest learning outcome of 2020 is the role of medicine, but specifically the behavioral aspect of medicine. Because besides COVID-19, I think that most most diseases have a behavioral component to them, which relate to to health healthcare-seeking behaviors. And 
specifically with COVID, right now the, we currently have four vaccine candidates with a, which have been started to um, which have been rolled out. But at the same time, the simplest measure to control COVID nineteen is to social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands. But it's like as humans, we don't see that as good enough. Prevention in a lot of people's minds is not the cure. And we were looking for all these fancy things where everyone wants the vaccine or specific medication that can eradicate it. Meanwhile, the simplest and you can almost say the free solution is to just adhere to these simple measures that government and the WHO have rolled out. But it's not that simple. Just adding to the conversation, it's very interesting to look at countries that have been quite successful in their COVID-19 responses. And obviously, we look at the examples of New Zealand and recently Singapore that's overtaken the top spot from New Zealand. And then you also compare it to America where they've done way worse than anyone could have expected. And an example that Krithi actually brought up just now is India. And at the current moment in time, India is doing very, very poorly. Currently, they are about to reach their 200 case mark and they are really struggling with hospital space and oxygen supplies. So countries such as France, UK, Australia and many more are currently doing all they can to aid India in their COVID-19 response. One of the worst things I saw as a doctor working during the COVID-19 pandemic was ill patients just separated from their loved ones and their families and families having to say goodbye over iPads. I think, you know, it was devastating. I've never, yeah, I can't put it into words really. And I, <laughs> I'm laughing because, so I had COVID-19 and there were a couple of nights which were a bit like hairy in terms of my, my shortness of breath. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to hospital. I'm not going to be separated and not be able to see the people that I love, you know? Mm-hmm. And if I'm being totally honest and I'm sort of bearing all in this podcast, I know I had like a pretty good chance of going, but there was a part of me which said, do you know what? I'll take my chances and not go to hospital. So, yeah, I think that the one of the another one of the really big reflections that I've had this year is about isolation and how it can break people. Yeah. What's interesting also was, Krithi, what you said about your experience with COVID, and I'm hearing this more and more often, is how the healthcare practitioners experience the healthcare system. And it's almost as if doctors, I'm not sure how about nurses, but specifically doctors, don't completely trust hospitals themselves. I know, so I personally have not had COVID, but my dad did. And it took quite a lot of convincing for him to just get tested. And he's had many friends who have now ended up in hospital. And it's just been very horrible, horrible experiences from the sounds of it. Some are because of inherent problems with healthcare, and this is specifically in private healthcare but also because of what your expectations are when you're the doctor. You know what things are supposed to be like, or at least in your mind. But then it's even more interesting to then turn back and think about how you then deliver healthcare to your patients. Do you give it up to, do you give your service? Does it match the high standards that you have in your own head? Uh, I absolutely, I think, how many of you, just as a sort of slightly fun icebreaker, would be happy to eat hospital food for a week at our current hospital not at all no ma'am <laughs> Ephosa, you're thinking about uh, it <laughs> no i actually have a, a, a pro, like a researched answer i'd say if i was in a public hospital no i don't think i could do it for a week but i have been in hospital for a week in private and it wasn't that bad but like also still 
there's nothing like home food and like i and i like i'm like one of those people that like for eyes described i don't like hospitals you know as a doctor you know <laughs> weirdly enough yeah yeah so i would really and i kind of also did before i was admitted like delay presentation yeah um, last year i had a pneumonia so i did the de- oh, delay gosh. presentation and and i think even like my like other healthcare professionals my dad is also a doctor also kind of the same i don't know no, i think it's also just that vulnerability aspect we're so used to being the one treating or helping you know mm. or, and now we're in that position where we are at our hands i mean our lives and our health are in the hands of others and like we're vulnerable and just have to like accept so to say and a lot of us don't like that loss of control aspect i think maybe it's also more of that than just position of being in hospital mm-hmm. and sometimes i personally mm-hmm. also did think i was over treated mm-hmm. i did think i was over treated and over investigated as well so mm-hmm. it's always those aspects thing maybe you also just be hypercritical and things like that mm-hmm. yeah sorry i just asked a question it was a very random question about hospital food but i just asked it because again one of the ver- very illogical thought to my head when I was having shortness of breath it was, I think it was maybe like day four or five and I was just thinking no don't you dare give up on me lungs because then you'll have to go into hospital and eat hospital food for a week you know and yeah. the, I genuinely think that's one of the things that got me better I just couldn't bear the thought of it so yeah uh, yeah but it, it's very very interesting what you say Fozo, about control and us being in the healing position and we don't like to be the ones in need of help and I, I do relate to that quite a lot as well. Like I said, the whole conversation that has been had on this episode is based, is based on COVID-19 stats from the 21st of December. And at that moment in time, South Africa had 930,000 cases approximately. When you compare that to now, we have had 1.58 million cases. Over the past day, there's been 849 new cases. U.S. is currently sitting at about 32 million cases, and India 17.6 million cases. They've had an increase of 323,000 cases since yesterday. Currently, the U.K. has had 4.41 million cases. In terms of deaths, South Africa is sitting at about 54,000 deaths. The U.S. is about 572,000 deaths, and India 198,000 deaths. The UK is a bit further behind, but not too good either, but 127,000 deaths. So, Krithi, currently, well, based on the news, we don't know what's going on exactly, but from what we see, the UK is one of the first countries to start rolling out the COVID-19 vaccines along with the US. As far as I understand, it's the elderly and healthcare professionals that have been prioritized. What exactly is going on in the ground, on the ground? <laughs> good question. Elaborate. Oh, I've, do you know what, in, in a sort of slightly self-preservation mechanism, I don't know if you guys have, sorry, slight tangent, I will answer your question, I promise. Um, I don't know if you guys have done this as well, but I've almost, there is an infodemic out there with regards yeah. to COVID-19 and local practices and public health numbers and ITU numbers. And I've just had to stop looking, you know, and keeping up to date. Have you found that as well, everyone? I was actually going to bring it up just now is that. Oh, really? What's interesting or what's, I think, rather annoying is with the social media theme, sorry, I actually forgot about this, was when I brought up the social um, the social media epidemiologist, a lot of people have been bringing up very technical terms 
that myself, like I've struggled with for a long time. And I still think I'm trying to, I always have to remind myself to make sure that I'm like actually saying the correct thing. But I've had two friends in the past week that have incorrectly used the words false, false negative and false positive to motivate the reason not to test for COVID-19. And uh, it just frustrated me so much because it's all out there. And in a sense, you think that it does help that you're putting out all of this information for people that they'll become more knowledgeable. But at the same time, we forget how much, how many lectures we've been through and all the textbooks that are out there that we have to cram for exams or possibly some of us will end up having to use in our careers very frequently that now people have access to at their fingertips and now are supposed to make sense of it all. So yeah, all of this information is is both amazing, but it can also be a burden and it can actually have opposite effects of what it's intended to do. I don't know what everyone else thinks. Um, I think it's, yeah, like you have a fair point there. With a lot, of, I think a lot of people are having this sort of information overload and it's important to put out a lot of information like, and try and put it out as being like maybe sort of say transparently as possible, but at the same time also maybe the, the challenge there would be to breaking it down into digestible chunks because I think at the moment it's just a lot at large volumes in a short space of time versus smaller digestible, you know, content that can be sort of processed by people and then allow them to make an informed decision with that information. So I think maybe that's where it's at, so to say. But I guess also at the same time, those of us who are trained to understand this data, as you said, like after many years of studying, Maybe it's also our role to try help educate or clarify, you know, when people do misuse that information. Hey, I hear you, of course, but social media is a monster. You know, how are you going to try and get your opinion across on Twitter, for example, without you know, Twitter Twitter's attacking you? Yeah, I mean, Twitter's, I mean, I don't, I'm not even on Twitter, but I've heard that Twitter can be that, you know. So it becomes a, where does our, where does our, role as healthcare practitioners and educators, where does it start and where does it end? Because I mean I can't be out here giving a lecture on Twitter to thousands of people who are just going to be like, what do you know anyway? Or who are going to hack the University of Southern Bosch and find my marks from first year and be like this guy got X amount, what does he know anyway? Yeah. You know, so where where do you draw the line? You know, yeah. because we can't we are yes, we are custodians of health, but we can't like it's it's dangerous for our own personal self it's dangerous. I agree, Nick. Yeah, Twitter is dangerous, so it can be. Um, and then, I mean, there are people out there, you know, who are social media doctor celebrities, or I say celebrities loosely, but like they're actually like, um, well, sort of say they're quite popular in a sense, but also speak the truth and they're not afraid of backlash or they handle it quite well. And maybe it's their power and influence. I'm not, so like, I don't know, I can't be like that, you know, so to say, or maybe later on in life but i don't think so we all have our strengths and weaknesses and i think there are people on twitter or social media who are able to be that to be that strong like person who's going to voice a reason so to say and able to withstand any potential backlash or there is nothing to backlash at them because they 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 know their stuff and they're standing on a firm foundation before can i ask a question in rebuttal to that because i i'm completely with you and I think that it is very important that you have people that are steadfast and are ready to kind of take the world on and put out the facts there. 
but then the inverse of that is what happens when you have those people that so we all doctors we all have a basic understanding of clinical medicine but with time i think especially when you specialize you maybe might be more attuned to certain disciplines for example i'm gonna throw the discipline that i want to get into one day under the bus but let's say it's an orthopod for example and now an orthopod is busy educating the world on public health and infectious diseases not to say that it's not possible for an orthopod to have a brain but you there's some people that are also very ready to throw out information or rather throw out disinformation just because they have a public platform and there's also people that are very popular as doctors that are spreading false information so then where do we go there because it's like we want doctors spreading correct information but it's like you, you can't have a regulatory body on social media dictating what people can and cannot say so then do you say anyone can speak or only certain people are allowed to speak how do you go about that or how do you think i know it's hard to come up with these answers i don't yeah i don't have the answers but i'm just throwing that out there well i think the very nature of social media which is positive can be seen as positive and negative is that pretty much anybody has a voice and an opinion so whatever is on such platforms one needs to take with a pinch of salt some people use their twitter feeds strictly as like a news feed they only follow news channels whatever some people it's entertainment or whatever so one can try and try and sort of tailor their feeds or who they follow who they what tweets they read or for example or facebook or whatever to their uh, needs and try and find the most trusted sources of information but ultimately at the end of the day it's still a social media platform and maybe in a sense cannot really replace like trusted sources so mm. even though maybe you can see a tweet or a thread from a trusted source or a popular voice or popular opinion or even a doctor celebrity who may or may not be uh, spreading disinformation one would hope and keyword on hope that everyone would take that information and still try verify it with trusted sources but yeah that's all i can say on that did you know that twitter has recently or is going to trial a misinformation warning about covid-19 and vaccines and stuff as they did for the us election oh really mm, i believe they are i don't think i'm just making this up i'm just looking this up as i'm speaking just to make <laughs> sure i haven't made this up but i don't think i have I don't think I have. Yeah, I think it's about people saying, "Oh, this vaccine will give you autism and stuff." Um, so then, what happens? Does it like report your tweet or like it just delete it automatically? Let's say it says, "Oh, classic, classic, classic." That I can't. There we go. It has made a blog, and oh yeah, under our current policy, um, we already. And I'm just reading this out. Please feel free to edit this in the post take, but. Under our current policy, we already require the remo removal of tweets that include false or misleading information about the nature of the virus, such as how it spreads within communities, the efficacy and or safety of preventative measures, treatments and other precautions, official regulations, restrictions or exemptions, and the prevalence or risk of infection and death. So you're already not allowed to do all this stuff, but they're expanding the policy and starting in early 2021, we may label or place a warning on tweets that advance unsubstantiated rumors dispute claims as well as incomplete or out of context information about vaccines so in terms of who's responsible i think social media platforms are taking a stance and dare i say a lot of this is coming from the 
fake news pandemic, I mean, pandemic's almost an overused word now, but the fake news pandemic surrounding the US election and yeah. Donald Trump's government. Now, even more numbers and the big numbers, I think that everyone needs to pay attention to is the vaccine numbers. So currently, South Africa has administered about 292,623 doses of COVID-19 vaccines using, so basically I got this information from Reuters, and they said that this is enough to, this means that about 0.2% of the population has been vaccinated. However, this statistic is assuming that two doses need to be given for, for a patient to be immunized. Still not great, especially if you compare it to our neighbors north, I'm Zimbabwean, and obviously I know my country's not been doing too well recently, but Zimbabwe has managed to give out 411,610 doses to the population. However, this is um, vaccines that do need two doses for each person, but that's still 1.4% of the population being vaccinated, which is much better. The US, 230 million doses have been administered. administered. This is about 35.2% of the country's population. They are currently giving about 2.8 million doses per day. So for them to get another 10% of the population vaccinated, that's going to take about 23 days. Where South Africa at our current rate is going to need 4,692 days to vaccinate 10% of the population. The UK currently vac given out 46 million doses of their vaccine, which is about 34.9% of the total population. For them to administer another 10% of their population is going to take 27 days. Obviously, things should be improving as vaccine policies and mechanisms, etc. are developed. But yeah, people really need to pick up the rate at which they are vaccinating. Issues with the vaccine strategy has been well documented in South Africa, or rather the lack of a proper vaccine strategy. We've also had lots of problems with the vaccines chosen, some which are not necessarily the government's fault, but others that are. So obviously we started with AstraZeneca, which was discontinued due to it supposedly not being effective against the South African variant. Then healthcare workers have been vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which also was briefly stopped, but currently is back on. And also South Africa has ordered quite a few Pfizer vaccines, which should be arriving in the country between April and June. The UK has been vaccinating its population with Pfizer since December, and since January, they've started using AstraZeneca, and in April, they've just started using the Moderna vaccine. US is very similar. Since December, they've been using Pfizer, um, as well as Moderna, and they have also recently started using Johnson & Johnson since April 2021. So, just to wrap up, I just want to find out from everyone. In the year that is 2021, I think what we spoke about at the beginning was 2020 was supposed to be the year that everything good happened for everyone. It did for some. Nicholas got married, if people didn't notice. But in general, what are people hoping for in the year that well, is 2021? We start with you, Chrissy. I am hoping to hug more people <laughs> safely and to travel. When do you uh, think you're going to be? Um, when, when are you hoping for it? I'm going to be able to realistically, really summer. I'm hoping. So that's that's opposite to us. When's that? Like May? What? If yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes. It is. Yeah. May, June, July, August, 
that's no, the that's time amazing. period. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. I've made a hit list of places that I want to travel to and people that I want to hug. <laughs> oh, no, shame. So we're hoping that that your 2021 aspirations will come true, Nicholas. Yeah, truly, I think my 2021 aspiration would be to either find my passion in medicine or to find a way out of it, to be 100% honest. Because I don't think I can see myself doing something that I'm not passionate about for the rest of my life. So I think, yeah, 2021 aspirations is to try and do as much as I can whilst uh, not working too hard, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I don't want to find myself in a department where I'm actually miserable with terrible working hours, you know? I'd rather be in a miserable department with fantastic working hours or <laughs> a great department with terrible working hours. You know what I mean? Yeah. There must be some sort of a battle. Yeah, please, if anybody is listening. What are you hoping for? What would you hate being rotated in? What would you ideally want to be rotated in? Now you're trying to hang me out to dry though. So I do not want to do pediatrics. Sorry, Kathy. Um, I do not want to do obstetrics or gynecology. Um, I'm sure the list goes longer, but those two are always the ones that I remember. General surgery, I, I, I'm not a general surgeon. I, I, I'm not. I'm playing with the idea of being a surgeon in general, but I'm certainly not a general surgeon. By the way, Nicholas is, correct me if I'm wrong, father is a pediatrician and his sister is an obstetrician, so he's trying uh, to escape. Uh, <laughs> that explains it. No, no, those people are crazy. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> I don't have the strength to do it. I just can't. It, it can't be me. It's not a vibe. So 2021, they are favorable rotations. Or, yeah, let's leave it there. If yeah, so. thank you. For me, I just want to, I'm looking forward to having a positive clinic experience. So for our listeners, I'll be working at a community health center or clinic next year. Um, for my community service, or this year while you're listening. Um, where we can find them. Yeah, but uh, hoping for a positive clinical experience, but at the same time, getting as much exposure in other aspects of medicine as as is possible where I'll be at, and also just gaining more independence. And as a as a doctor, you know, out of a big you know central hospital where I'm currently at, or I where I did my internship. And also just growing in other aspects of life, family, hobbies, really finding my place in, and my journey. So in general, a more wholesome year. If yeah. I can summarize what you want. And what about you, Farai? So I think maybe the safe thing to do would be to not have any aspirations for 2021. So in that way, if anything good happens, then that's a bonus. Anything Don't bad. be boring. Don't be boring. Yeah, boring. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I can relate most to Erforza's Erforza's sentiments, and I think for me specifically, finding more of a work work life balance, so between yeah, leisure and work, but at the same time trying to become more efficient in the work aspect. I think yeah, that will be a great thing to aim for in 2021, and I think finally just to keep growing in our podcast. I'm hoping that we can get a lot more episodes done and we can keep people listening and try to make medicine as simple as possible. So, yeah, thank you to everyone for listening. This is the first podcast that we've able to we've been able to include all of the all of our co-hosts or hosts in and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope everyone has as well. 
please continue to listen to our podcasts and give us lots and lots of feedback. We really appreciate the feedback that we have received. We're going to continue season three. We've got a lot in store. So we are going to try to be as consistent as possible. And for now, yeah, we're going to continue making medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. Much to his dismay, Nick is still in medicine. Krithi has only recently started hugging people again. Eforsa is running clinic by himself, and I have still not found balance between my work life and my social life.